Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 173. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Lee's Comics. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by popoptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. You remember them from your childhood. Half for the Friendly Ghost, Richie Ridge, Hot Stuff, Baby Huey, Sad Sack and Little Audrey. You read them in comic books and saw them on television and in the movies. Now you can read about how they and other Harvey comic characters were created in two great books from Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. The Best of Harveyville Fun Times and the Harvey Comic Companion. Both are available from Amazon. The Companion is also available from Fair Manor Media. They are available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook version. Order your copies today. Long title, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Song One by One, by Michael Aventrella and Mark Arnold. A book that examines each song, gives lots of details about each song, and our own personal opinions. You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch. Christmas, Christmas time is here, and Alvin and the Chipmunks are here again. In 1958, a down songwriter with an unlikely name of Ross Bagdasarian plunged the last of his family savings on a multi-speed tape recorded and created The Witch Doctor and Alvin and the Chipmunks. It changed the fortune for his family, his record label, and animated cartoon studio. Alvin! The story of Ross Bagdasarian, Liberty Records, Format Films, and The Alvin Show by Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions is available from Amazon and Fair Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today. You can now order my latest book, The TTV Scrapbook, from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Bear Manor Media. If you'd like signed copies of this or any of my books, please email me at funideas.mark at gmail.com for further information on how to order directly from me via PayPal. I now have three super articles to write for Back Issue, Super Richie, Super Dagwood, and Super Fan. My Pac-Man book is the next to be coming out, and I'm still working on my Mad and Turtles books. 
Warren Kremer is due out eventually, as is my next Disney book. On today's show, we have an animator and cartoonist who drew the covers to two of my books, my Total Television book and my DePatty Freeling book. He also worked on the Ren and Stimpy comic book for Marvel Comics and for Filmation and for Ralph Bakshi's Mighty Mouse. Here he is, Mike Kazala. Hi, this is Mark Arnold with another episode of Fun Ideas Podcast, and today I have a cartoonist, an artist, an animator who did the cover of this book that I put behind me, created and produced by Total Television Productions. He also did the cover for my, which I don't have behind me, and my Think Pink book. Oh, there's the picture. Oops. <laughs> there's the picture there. Ah, it disappeared. Anyway, <laughs> so here he is, Mike Kazala. How are you today, sir? Uh, well, I'm fine, thank you. All right. Um, you know, I've talked to you many, many, many times before, not on this format. And, uh, you know, there's actually people on Facebook, since you're not on Facebook, that says, why is Mike Kazala not on Facebook? <laughs> and I kind of say, well, you know, you, you have your private life and you want to do your own thing. But I mean... Uh, I guess the basic thing is, you know, here's your opportunity. You can kind of address your fans because you're actually kind of known a little bit uh, through your animation and uh, through your commentaries and other things like that. So, oh, I don't know. I just never got on Facebook. It wasn't, <laughs> I, I just never did it. Um, yeah. And there you have it, folks. So, <laughs> I do Zoom, so. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I, I just wanted to put that out there because people say, well, why is, you know, and, and some people think you do it because you don't do it because you're like resentful. And I go, no, he's a cool guy. He's, you know, resentful. He's okay. yeah. people make up things. So it's like, I go, no, here he is. Um, so, you know, like I said, we, we've uh, talked before, but, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you became an animator. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, they became an animator because I really wanted to do it very badly. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I started training myself to do it and during my school years, which just meant trying to, you know, draw pictures and filming them with whatever cameras I could borrow and just trying to learn to do it. And, and uh, you know, I had a lucky break in Detroit doing, doing commercials. And I did that for a while in sales films in Detroit. And then, then I went out to L.A. and I started working at Filmation. <laughs> and uh, that was the first time I worked somewhere where there were, like, really other cartoonists. Hmm. Because before, you know, when I was doing my stuff in Detroit, I was doing almost all of the work on them. And what were you doing, like just storyboarding or layouts or what type of oh, thing? Oh, everything. Yeah, uh -huh. storyboarding, layouts, mm -hmm. animation, timing. I was inking the cells, painting the backgrounds. Wow, you did do everything. Okay. I had people paint, you know, opaquing the cells. And I had a, a, a gentleman who used to help me with the photography and the editing. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was it, you know. Now, what type of things did you do? Is it like uh, commercials or what, what did you produce in Detroit? Yeah, they were commercials, a lot of them. Uh, some of them were in-house videos for companies. Mm -hmm. 
would there be anything that we might have seen nationally or is it all very localized it, it, it was i mean the, the the longer films were you wouldn't have seen nationally because they were from within a company like it made a few films for gmac but they were only shown to car dealers oh okay but so the commercials were mostly seen in the midwest you know and what, what type of products were you typically promoting? Well, I was, I did, uh, yeah, two different home construction companies, a foot doctor. Um, <laughs> let me think. I know I did, I did some little film, little bits of animation for Owens Corning. Hmm, okay. Um, it wasn't Pink Panther, was it? Or was it? There, the Pink Panther bit I did was for a trade show. It wasn't for one of the commercials. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. But were they affiliated with the Pink Panther at that time when you were working on oh, it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. They were doing commercials with them selling fiberglass insulation. Yeah. Okay. But you personally were working on a different product or? No, I was, it was just, I, I, I know I did some effects animation for a spot, but I did the the Panther animation was literally for a tape they were running at a trade exhibition. Wow. Okay. I never <laughs> knew you did that. I mean, no. I know obviously from me trying to show the the book cover here. Let's try it again. It uh, yeah, it wasn't much animation either. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll have to take this up. There it is. There we go. If I hold it like that, then you can see. Uh, Panther at the animation board with the little white guy with a big nose coming in. Anyway. Yeah. You might <laughs> notice that, I don't know if you can see it, but there's an action figure of the little Grizz guy in the background right there. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then you got Big Boy next to him towering over him. <laughs> That's funny. So, um, did you go directly from there to Filmation or did you kind of shop around uh uh hollywood or whatever yeah, or other it's a long story but i found out that filmation was staffing up for a project so i called them while i was still in detroit and i got joe mazuka who was their production manager on the phone and uh, he invited me to mail some drawings to them and i did mm -hmm. he said well if you're in la stop by i'll be happy to talk with you Mm -hmm. I drove to LA and wow. <laughs> so you didn't even and, uh, fly, you the didn't. remarkable thing was I, you know, got into a motel and called Joe Mazuka again. And he actually remembered he told me that. So he says, Oh yeah, hi, come on by. Well, that's good. Yeah, usually people say, Who are you again? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> no, he actually meant it. So, you know, and he, he got me. Make a long story short, set up working there. So, mm -hmm. so he basically hired you on the spot then, based on your drawings. Well, no, he got me interviews with people at the company. Mm -hmm. And so, so, what 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 projects did you work on at Filmation? Well, I mean, yeah, they they tried me out on He Man, and nobody liked that. <laughs> uh, and I, that's okay. I didn't really like He Man myself. But, uh, they moved me over to Hal Sutherland's unit working on that Pinocchio movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah um, which that was in 85. And uh, they, yeah, they were going to make 
I remember seeing a brochure they'd made for Westinghouse at the time. They were going to make 13 movies. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, they they completed two of them. Right. Wasn't it, it Happily Ever After was one? And then, uh, yeah. and then yours and, was Pinocchio and the Emperor of the Night. Is that the full title or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. The Pinocchio one was released in Europe first. Mm-hmm. The, 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 Happily ever after one, I don't think came out till a couple of years after the studio was shut down. I think you're right. Yeah, I think it came out. I don't think they're trying to be chronological with Disney. I just think that the Pinocchio no. one was first and just got done first, correct? Yeah. And that was I mean, that was that was actually probably the most expensive thing they ever made because it was full fully animated all the way through. Hmm. You know, there there wasn't any reuse in it. It was it was yeah. all full animation. Yeah, I remember being pretty impressed with it, considering at the time. I mean, now you know you have computer animation and everything, but you know, compared to say like Journey Back to Oz, which is kind of like TV stuff, and didn't they do one other movie? Maybe they did a He Man. They did several movies. I think I think the first movie they did was Treasure Island. Hmm. Okay. 68, and then they did an Oliver Twist movie. But that Oz picture had a long and tortured history before it was actually completed. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, I've read about that in Andy Mangle's book about filmation. Yeah. And uh I never knew that. You know, I always thought that Journey Back to Oz was made like in the early 70s. And the reason they cast Liza Minnelli was because uh judy garland had passed away and it was just a tribute to her mom and it was totally untrue i just made it up i didn't know <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> i remember you know they making a, a you know says on the titles danny thomas as uh the scarecrow and i'm listening to it and think danny thomas sounds an awful lot like larry storch <laughs> and uh well it turns out i i guess they had some singing that thomas recorded and something happened to the voice track he recorded and they re-recorded it with Larry Storch instead of getting Danny Thomas to re-record it. Hmm. That's what I heard. Yeah. I'm not sure on that, but yeah, that sounds funny. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. Or maybe... Oh, it sounded like this. Oh, Dorothy. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe Danny Thomas said, you want me to re-record it? Money. You know, <laughs> it's like... <laughs> You know, so okay. They said we'll we'll get the second rate actor. We'll get Larry Storch. <laughs> um, now, did you work? Didn't they do a filmation Ghostbusters show around that same time as you're working on that as well? Did you work? Yeah, on that they one? did. They yeah, they started that show. They, they yeah. I mean, I I think the three separate shows were started while the movie was in production. One of them was She Ra. Oh yeah. And then that Ghostbusters show, and then Brave Star. Oh yeah, forgot about that. Yeah, and they did a cheapo movie, and um, <laughs> the movie was, I think, I mean, th- this this was you know a long time ago. My recollection of it was that movie for Brave Star was about three million dollars, and they did it in about approximately three months. <laughs> And the Pinocchio picture was it was about twelve months and twelve million 
dollars. So there was a big difference in the budget of them. <laughs> Much bigger budget, yeah. But I, I went back to work for them just before they shut down when they were working on the Bugsburg show. Mm-hmm. And that was something unique in that there was no stock in that show. All the animation was new animation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we were allowed to use more drawings in them, too. I, you know, they'd use that. That stock system was never really supposed to save work for the animators so much as it was supposed to save time in the ink and paint department. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because ink and paint is always the biggest cash outlay in a production so by reusing cells they saved a lot of money i mean the animators would have to sit down and re-expose the drawings for the scenes or add any new props that were in them right and that's also why there were so many you know things broken down into small pieces like heads and arms and mouths because they take less time to paint hmm but on uh, the but I think they were feeling the pinch of competition by the Bugsburg show, and they we had footage. We had to do a certain amount of footage every week, but they weren't. They didn't care if it was fully full fuller animation, hmm. as long as we get the footage done. Sounds like how it was when I interviewed Roman Arambula years ago about working for Gamma. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. They yeah. similarly they paid for footage. You know, they didn't pay for so if uh, if they did like the brief recap on the underdog episode where they go in our last episode, you know, they yeah. got paid for it again, even though half of it was repeat footage from the last time. So they're all hey, so that was the ones everybody wanted to work on were the ones that had the repeat footage at the beginning of the episode. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that was a similar thing with the Pinocchio thing. But, uh, no, no, it was. I mean, it was, it was, you know, we were on, no, uh, no, that's, that was on salary. You came and worked eight hours and okay. there was so much work they expected you to do in a week. And it was a realistic amount of work to be done, you know. Right. Okay. Now, um, did you work on any other projects at Filmation? Because I know it closed pretty soon after that, right? No, it closed while we were working on Bugsburg. Oh, okay. What what happened? I mean, it's it's probably in that. I haven't read that book, but I'm sure that story is in there about how the market for syndicated daily shows was getting soft because it was oversaturated. Right, right. So the ad revenue was starting to dip. So Westinghouse, who never bought Filmation on purpose in the first place, mm-hmm. they they bought Teleprompter to get the cable system. <laughs> And I go, did, did, guys, did you know we bought a cartoon studio? Like, no, you're kidding me. No, look here. <laughs> so they didn't even know they were buying. Uh, yeah. Well, then how does L'Oreal fit into the picture? I mean, or they wanted who bought it afterwards? No, they, they were from Europe. And they. Okay. The, my understanding at the time was they thought that the films hadn't been seen as much in Europe. And they wanted to buy the library out. Mm-hmm. They were not interested in production. Hmm. And I remember that there was some buzzing around the studio that this was going on. And it, and I recall Scheimer trying to prevent that from happening. Because mm-hmm. I think he knew that they were going to shut the studio down if they bought 
bought it, which is which they didn't waste any time either. They shut they shut it down, you know, on a Friday right after the sale was made. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and I think the weeks leading up to that, Lou looked like he hadn't been sleeping much. I think he was trying to prevent that deal from happening, possibly. Now, by- was Filmation a publicly traded company? I mean, what was the deal there? I mean, didn't he have any sort of say so on all that? You know, it's like wasn't his his company or it was not? No, I I don't know. I mean, I thought I thought they had sold out the teleprompter in the sixties. Okay. okay, maybe I'm missing that part of the story. So okay, yeah. so they weren't they were kind of like uh, I you guess like Hanna Barbera with Taft. You know? Yeah, that's what I was going to think of uh, animation. Yeah. Or I was thinking like William Gaines with Mad. He was just kind of a figurehead, but Warner's owned it. You know, it's like yeah, like that. So okay, all right. Because you don't think about it that way, because all you ever see in those old filmation shows is the circle with Shimer and Prescott, and then Hal Sutherland's wonderful signature. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, he had that signature on his parking space, as I remember. <laughs> I I think right after the teleprompter sale, at the end of some of the shows, it said a teleprompter company. It probably did. I just never paid that close attention to it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I didn't used to pay close attention to with Hanna-Barbera, with Taft, you know. I just thought yeah. Hanna-Barbera owned their own company all through, like, the 80s. And then I found out, oh, they sold it in the 60s? I had no idea, <laughs> you know. Why would they do that, you know? No, I'll tell you why they did it. I mean, I, I don't know this, but this is what I think they were thinking. Hmm. You know, they worked at MGM, which must have been seemed like a stable situation. They were there for 20 years. Right, shut down, and they were, you know, they were trying to figure out what to do while MGM was shutting down. But they must have figured if MGM could shut down, any place could shut down. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing this is only speculation that they figured we'd make enough on the sale of the company that if the whole thing tanks, we still have enough money to live on. So at the time, that might have seemed like a, you know, a smart thing to do. Yeah, I'm just surprised they did it so early. You know, it seems like you know it was, they're only like barely ten years into it. It seems like they could have waited another ten years or so, but maybe yeah. they were getting nervous or something. I don't know. And they weren't, and they weren't even the only the stockholders at the time, because Columbia Pictures had a stake in the company too, mm-hmm. which I think they had to buy back before they could make the sale. Mm-hmm. Now, I know Columbia kind of ran itself, you know, completely different than MGM, kind of like with little or no budget. If you, if I go by my history of Three Stooges and stuff like that, they did everything on the cheap So compared to MGM. So maybe they saw the writing on the wall, which is kind of odd, but, you know, and interesting that they did it like two years before they created what's arguably their greatest accomplishment, which I'm not a fan of, is Scooby-Doo. <laughs> you know? Well, that was certainly their biggest cash cow ever. Yeah. I'm wondering if they regret... Did you ever talk to Bill Hanna or Joe Barbera about that? Like, did they ever regret selling the company? I, I, I've only spoken to them a few times, and I wasn't going to talk about anything like that or about Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yeah. I just thought it might have come up or something, you know. Not, you know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, now, in the case of uh, Filmation, then, um, was there 
anything that uh, Lou Scheimer or the other guys could do, or they really just were like, we're we're stuck and we got to. No, I, I I I'm don't quote me on this, but I it's it's a dim recollection, but I think Scheimer was trying to see if he could round up the capital to buy the place before L'Oreal did. Yeah. That sounds that sounds reasonable, you know. Yeah, he really was worried that, about the staff being thrown on the street, which is unusual for a boss. Right. He really didn't want to see everybody getting kicked out of the place, so he was trying to do something about it. And and even after they bought it, he tried to buy the show from them so he could finish it. Right. Because a lot of work, you couldn't imagine how much work had already been done on it. Right. And was it finished or is it just stopped it just stopped it just stopped yeah wow <laughs> but there was a lot of work that's crazy, that's crazy. <laughs> i mean you, you'd think they'd do it like say like warner brothers where they're working on the incredible mr limpet and they say well you know we're closing down but let's finish this project at least you know <laughs> and, you know something yeah like but... no they weren't sentimental at l'oreal <laughs> not at all now, have you ever heard anything since, like there's regrets or anything, or that was a stupid move on their part, or, I mean, not by others, but by them, you know, did, was there any regret or no? Regrets on whose part? Uh, but on L'Oreal's part, probably not, but. I'm no, just... I, they, they probably don't have regrets about anything. I don't know. <laughs> know. So in the last day, I've heard this before, and this is in the book, you know, it's like, didn't they just like gather everyone and anyone that worked there like in one big room and just announced it is I thought that's that... not exactly what happened there oh, was okay. one big room this was a office building in Canoga Park mm-hmm. the last you know the last building they were in was 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 a, a three four story office building in Canoga Park mm-hmm. and there wasn't an auditorium in it there was a there was a fairly large conference room mm-hmm and Scheimer called people in in groups to tell them what happened. Okay. You know, so I admired him for telling everybody in person what happened. Yeah. Rather than just having somebody say, get out of here on the EA system. <laughs> you know, he, yeah, he kept, everybody was called in in bunches and he just sat, the, sat everybody in the conference room and he explained what had just happened. Wow. And was that really your last day? I mean, there and it was everybody's last day. Okay, so you know, there was no like two weeks notice or anything like that. It was just no, no, uh, was, no. There was no notice. I mean, they paid severance, but um, one friend of mine who was an animator there was was on a skiing trip that day, <laughs> and I left a message on his phone machine and said. Uh, Bob, don't come to the studio. It's been closed down. And he thought, well, that's my, one of Mike's pranks again, right? Oh. <laughs> well, I guess he'd find out when the doors are locked or whatever. Yeah, he and, did. Okay. <laughs> so he did show up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Should have been there and said, I wasn't fooling, eh? <laughs> but, you know. So what did you do immediately after? I mean, I know that you did go on to work for Bakshi and the Mighty Mouse show, but was there... Yeah, I know. I, well, in between stints at Filmation, I worked with Bakshi. Okay. And I worked for the Clampets for a little bit. And 
Yeah, I worked with Bakshi again after that too. And I was, by that time, I was also working on the, I think by the time I was at Filmation, I was already doing, I was doing work for Rick Reinert. Oh, okay. I think I may have started doing work for Marvel. You know, and I and I believe I was also starting to do work for, for Playhouse Pictures on their commercials. So that was a busy period, actually. So there were other things to do, but it was just it was just kind of a, a shock seeing the place close up so suddenly. Well, yeah. That would be a shock too. Even yeah, knowing even... that that could happen. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were that busy, how how did you run your day? I mean, did you work out of your house or did you go to each studio for little bits of time during the week? It depended on it depended on the project. I mean, you know, some of the work was freelance, some of it was go into work. Mm-hmm. You know, the backshe stuff was always I went into work. The filmmaking was going into work. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think somewhere around there I was working at Warner Brothers, and that was going into work. Mm-hmm. Was there ever conflicts? There must have been. If you, yeah, there was. There was not a lot of sleeping back then. <laughs> but I mean, if you were scheduled for a day at say Warner Brothers, and then Ralph wanted you, what did you have to tell him? Say, I'm at Warner no, Brothers. I, today. Sorry, I, no, I couldn't. I couldn't be on staff at two places at once. Oh, okay. It'd be on staff one place and freelance at another place. Okay. You know, but, uh, and I mean, you know, I mean, I used to write on a calendar what was supposed to be due when. You know? <laughs> wow. So the calendar was all filled with marks and things and what, what day I had scheduled to work on this, that, or the other thing. That was a busy time period. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's incredible now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you probably don't want to re- repeat that now. I'm sure it's like maybe monetarily, but I mean, I, you know, I, I'd like uh, to have a little bit of it. If I yeah, can. but I mean, the hectic pace. I mean, how did you keep up? Did you lose sleep and all that? <laughs> yeah, no, uh, no, it was it was get up, throw some clothes on, and go to work. It was, <laughs> you know, I worked till bedtime, and wow, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> now, um. I could talk about other studios who work for it, but I I'm was a little more curious because uh, you know we were talking about Facebook. Uh, Jerry Beck and I started this uh, website, which may eventually lead to a book. Um, just uh, talking about uh, obscure animation companies and uh, stuff like that. Uh, you know, people the companies that did like. Characters like uh, Roger Amjad or, you know, like the Hal Seegers and all that, you know, all those different types of companies and everything. And then companies that did commercials and, you know, bits for Sesame Street and Electric Company and all that stuff. And my question after all that is, you seem to have this big, big working knowledge of like all that stuff. And even me being a, an animation historian to this day, some things like totally baffle me as to who did them and, and when and why. And you always seem to have an answer or a good educated guess. So where did you get your uh, knowledge and experience on all that stuff? I mean, mostly it was being fanatical. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, sometimes it would, you know, sometimes I end up working or befriending somebody who worked at or even ran one of those studios 
and I, in the case of Playhouse, yeah, I worked with them for 15 years. And when I started there, Aid Woolery, the founder, was still there, and he was very happy to talk about, you know, the history of the company, and that there was still artwork from the, their old commercials around that I could dig through, and oh, okay, you know, and uh, you know, people I could talk to about it. So mm-hmm. that 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 finding, yeah, work at Playhouse was 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 a great experience. First, I like I enjoyed the work there. Yeah, you know, and the Woolleries, but uh, I found out all of my heroes had passed through that company, <laughs> and 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 they were piles of their drawings in the storage room. You know, mm-hmm. so I know Roger Ramjet was done through Playhouse, but what were some other? No, it wasn't. That oh, was I thought Panamai. it was. That oh, was Panamai. Panamai. I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. That was You're... Fred Crippen's company. Okay, I was confusing Panamai with Playhouse. So, what did Playhouse do then? Let's let's. Uh... They for for most of their existence, they did commercials. Okay. They sometimes did TV and movie titles. They they did uh, sometimes sales films and educational shorts, but their main business was commercials. And any particular characters? Oh yeah, they did. Um, you know, for any of you Stan Freeberg fans, they used to do the uh, Clark Smathers, the Kaiser aluminum foil salesman. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Those, they did this long series of uh, commercials for Falstaff beer with Eddie Mayhoff as the old pro. Those are darn funny. And uh, they did the Peanuts animation starting in 1959 for Ford Falcon. Hmm, okay. That I didn't know. I always thought it was still connected to Melendez, but that only well, was for the specials. That, that's a story for somebody else to write, but it's a story Melendez had was working at Playhouse. Ah, okay. And he kind of he kind of uh, left under somewhat dubious circumstances and used a lot of the Playhouse staff to make a Charlie Brown Christmas. Hmm. Because it does have a similar look. Granted, it's still Charlie Brown, but you yeah. know, they're you mainly. Know. The, I mean, they're mostly the same people. You know, because Bill worked on those those Ford commercials with Peanuts, and uh, particularly Bill Littlejohn, Herman Cohen, mm-hmm. Alan Zaslov. They all worked on the Peanuts stuff before that. So you know, you had a staff of people already. Yeah, you know, Ruth Cassane was another one. I mean the. They were all from the playhouse. Mm-hmm. Now, how how late? How long did they go as a company? Playhouse. Yeah, they 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 were just shy of fifty years because uh, they opened late in fifty two, and they think it was two thousand and two that they shut down. Wow, they went that late. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was but- the last director there. <laughs> <laughs> So how long did were you there? It was it was about the last fifteen years they were in. Oh, okay, all right. So you you did get a, a chance to learn all that stuff. So yeah, okay. Um, since I mentioned Fred Crippen and uh, and I'm confusing it with the other ones, did you work for that company or any of those other? No, companies? I I love I love Fred's work. I loved Fred. He was a great guy. 
And I always wanted to work for him. But, uh, you know, it, it, the stuff he did was so simple. He really didn't need that many people. <laughs> it, was, it was like uh, one of the things, one of the many things they did at Panamine Pictures was the Dirk Niblick of the Math Brigade for <laughs> Square One TV, which was on PBS. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. So with, with you know, I had Gary Owens and Jim Thurman and Gene Moss, the whole gang in it, and Bob Arbogast and Joni Gerber. And they're really funny, but they were genuine math lessons in them. Hmm. I saw one on the tube, and I rushed over to see Fred. I was like, Fred, you got to let me work on these. And Fred was like, yeah, but geez, you know, it only takes a couple of guys, and I got them already. Oh. <laughs> Well, at least he's honest, I suppose. Yeah. Were there any other studios still around? Well, I don't. Here's my ignorance about a lot of this stuff. I don't know necessarily what was in New York versus what was in L.A. Obviously, Jay Ward was in L.A. Uh, TV Spots was in L.A., but I don't know all of them. Uh, TTV was in New York, but, you know, like Hal Seeger, that was New York? That was New York, yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay. Um, And then... The ones that did and uh, Linus the Lionhearted. Well, that was that was the production was done in L.A. Uh, Ed Graham, the advertising man who started that whole project, his office was based in New York. Okay, (laughs) they ended up using actors from both coasts. Okay, but all the animation was done on the west coast but even some of the character models were done in new york by george canada jr but some of them were done in la by bob kurtz who was at the la right office yeah mm-hmm. now did the same animators work on like all the tv commercials for posts since they were the same characters or was it totally separate not well some well, so, some of the post commercials were done there. Some of them were done at other studios. Okay, that's what I kind of thought because they didn't always uh, look the same, you know. And I, I always wondered about. That. Yeah, I mean, in a few cases they were like Gerard Baldwin worked on the TV show, and he worked on like some of those commercials before that, which the Jackie Leonard version of the Postman. Right. Now, hi, I'm your friendly neighborhood postman. I'm talking about post alphabets. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, I mentioned Roman, he, he worked for the company and I forgot the company name, but they made this little character called Jot. I mean, yeah, that, that was, company was in, in Dallas, Texas. It was, uh, that's right. I think he did. Mention it was that Kites that. Herndon. Yeah. He worked at Kites Herndon. Okay. And, uh, one of the things they specialized in at Kites Herndon was those drive-in, drive-in commercials. They did a lot for Dr. Pepper. Oh, is it like with the dancing drinks and food and stuff like that? Is no, that they were referring? they were pretty hip. They had some really sharp graphics and had some astonishing effects animation that would have taken multiple camera passes and careful planning. Mm-hmm. I mean, even you know that they did most of the jot cartoons. Some there were some that were done at two other studios. Hmm. I didn't think looked as good, but even some of the effects of Jot were done in multiple camera passes. Hmm. Like when he turned into a dot and he's bouncing around, that was done. They didn't animate a dot bouncing around. They did that with the camera. Oh. With separate passes. 
Kind of like the bouncing ball and the old bouncing ball singing cartoon. No, that was that was still a different process, but that oh. was <laughs> I mean both of that both of them involved, you know, burning something white over something with other values. Right. You know, that were shot separately. Mm-hmm. But uh, the 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 Fleischer bouncer ball bouncing balls were shot in real time. Mm-hmm. And uh at least the scenes where they had the actual bouncing ball and they had, you know, they pulled up on a drum the words. words, you know. words yeah. There was a black mask around them. But, you know, if, if let's say they had a drawing of a dot and they, you know, moved the camera mm-hmm. or, you know, and or moved the, you know, the compound that that was on and filmed the dot moving against just solid black and they could burn that over the background. Hmm. Looks like the dots moving, you know. <laughs> Interesting. It was a clever effect because you know they timed it well, so it looked it looked like animation. Right, right. And of course, when I was younger, I thought it was, and then I found out yeah. it wasn't. And I was like, "Wow, you know, that was a really good optical effect." You know. Yeah. No, <laughs> no they were that that studio was really amazing with optical effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it was all film back then. There was, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, um, did you work at? Uh, I mean, you you said you wanted to work with Fred Crippen, but are there any other studios you worked for, even for a short time, like Format or anything like that? No, I I, I knew Herb Klin. I, w- I was friends with Herb Klin, mm-hmm. so and he was happy to talk about the studio and everybody who worked at the studio, but. They uh, they weren't actually producing anything by then. And when was this? Early eighties. This was uh, late eighties, early nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the only thing I could think of is that they might have been doing an occasional hee haw animation by that point, or I, probably yeah, not I even that. By that time, I think they were just recycling animation. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so. Do they, did a lot of these animation studios just kind of keep their doors open even if they weren't really producing anything? Or it, how did it, that work? It really depended on where they were getting. The trouble with, with the commercial business is it's all work for hire. Right. And uh, so if they're not getting work in, they have no income. Mm-hmm. And a place like Hanna-Barbera, they had other money coming in from licensing and from rerun because you know they had us you know they got a piece of the reruns and they got a piece of the licensing so the money they got to produce the shows wasn't the only income for the right. studio but at a commercial house the money you get from the jobs is the only money you have coming in mm-hmm. if they go for too long without without work yeah that can seriously harm the studio mm-hmm. Now, um, uh, did you ever try working for Jay Ward or were they gone by the time? When did you get into the industry? I guess I should ask I, that. For I, I got into the industry in the early 80s, but I didn't get to L.A. till 85. Oh, OK. So they were pretty much done at that point. Ward was, yeah, Ward yeah. was winding down by then. Yeah. Um, and there's one that just came into my head a second ago and then it, it zipped back out again. And I was saying did you ever try working there? And I, it's like, I, I'll have to come across it again, but uh, 
let's see, mid eighties. Well, you did say you worked for Marvel. What did you do for Marvel when you worked there? Well, you, uh, no, I'm for the comic book division. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I thought I you mean, meant Marvel productions. The animation. I did one job for them on this long forgotten show on one episode of the show called the little wizards. Hmm. That was the only time I ever did anything for them. There were other times where I either went there looking for work. Mm-hmm. Or somebody may have even called me, but I, um, I recall going to see Alex Lovey, who I wanted to talk to anyways. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> but uh, he was, he was pretty, you know, at Marvel in the mid eighties, they were doing nothing but Hasbro. Right. GI Joe and all that. Yeah. And Alex, was going to be producing potato head kids. Huh. <laughs> and I, I went to see Alex. I actually just sat and chatted with him about cartoons for a while. Just like we're doing. <laughs> but I don't have a job for you, but maybe he didn't either. <laughs> and uh, you know, he wanted me to do storyboards on it, but I think he was he was in the hospital by the time they were getting scripts in and they had another producer who didn't know who I was. Hmm. <laughs> I, I missed out on the potato head kids oh well <laughs> so i guess you mentioned marvel so you know that means ren and stimpy right for the ren and stimpy yeah, I, yeah i worked i worked on mighty mouse before that and ren and stimpy uh an experimental book they did called epic light which unfortunately they did one issue of and didn't do a second one. Mm-hmm. They wanted to see if this one sells before we make more, but which is ludicrous because for for a normal comic book, you you have four of them completed before you have any idea how well the first one did. Right. Right. The fourth issue comes out by the time you find out what the first issue sold. So they said, well, we're going to put this out and see how it sells. But, you know, if it did sell, it would take them six months to get a follow up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, You know, so I don't remember if it did or didn't sell well, but I just know they never made a second one. (laughs) It, It was kind of them trying to do something like an alternative comic. Mm-hmm. So to that end, they had a lot of people from alternative comics in it, each doing a story, but it was in color. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see one th- one studio, you know, uh, like all the Kellogg's animation, you know, Tony the Tiger and everything. I think it was Burnett or something like that. Or well, that was the ad agency, Leo Burnett. And where did they do their animation over the years, or did it well, switch studios? Different, different studios. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned Tony the Tiger. For a long time, those were done at Quartet. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, some of their other clients, they would, there used to be a studio in LA called Filmfare. They used to do. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. For Leo Burnett, too, like Charlie the Tuna. Mm-hmm. And Filmfare tanked. About 1990. Okay. On that, but it was about then. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Charlie, Charlie the Tuna. I mean, I thought the Patty Freeling was doing it, or did they take it over once it was Marvel? No, I, I 
Yeah, they may have by then, but okay. I think I think Film Fair may have been doing them sooner than that because they were doing other work for Leo Burnett, like Keebler. Yeah. Okay. And Green Giant, you know, mm-hmm. those Green Giants you know, when they had the Sprout, that was Murakami Wolf. And, yeah, that was a studio I was going to ask you about too. I yeah. mean, did you ever try working for them because they did a lot of different TV specials and other random yeah. things over the years? So. They were a pretty hip studio for a long time, but then they got into doing those daily syndicated shows. <laughs> and they were all jobbed out overseas, like most of the other shows. Yeah. And uh, but you know, while they were doing commercials and TV specials, they they were they were doing some pretty hip. They actually have a cell on the other wall from, you know, from the animation they did for 200 motels. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't know if I told you this, but because um, we haven't talked for a while. I think the last time I saw you was when I was down there with Jerry, <laughs> like 2019, 2018 or something when I went down there to visit. But, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that was at the restaurant. But or I think we picked you up at your house. That's right. Um, but uh I'm working on a book about the turtles and uh, Flo and Eddie and everything. Of course, they're in 200 motels. Oh, yeah. And, I love uh, the turtles. They also worked on a Dirty Duck film, which Howard Kalin's trying to get reissued on like Blu-ray or something like that, because they somehow still own the rights to it, even though it's a Murakami Wolf thing. You know, yeah. Yeah. Or, like, or whatever. I said that wrong. Chuck Svensson did practically all the animation himself on the movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Dirty Duck movie? On, on Dirty Duck, which was actually going to be called Cheap. Yeah. And I, I know Flo and Eddie recorded a song called Cheap, which... That was a know. theme song. <laughs> yeah. And the one time uh, Jerry Beck wanted to run Dirty Duck at the silent movie theater, he got Chuck Spenson to come talk about it, mm-hmm. which is great. But what made it even more thrilling for me was... The print that he brought was an earlier print that actually had the title Cheap as the title. Oh, wow. <laughs> before they changed the name of it. <laughs> so I was probably the only person in the audience who saw the word cheap blazed in this big screen going, oh, my God, it's cheap. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody else got it. Yes. <laughs> Did Jerry know uh, about no, it? Or most no? of the people who were there were there. <laughs> Excuse me. Hmm. And... Uh, you know, they're very young. They probably didn't know, you know, what it was about necessarily, other than it was, you know, an early sort of an underground movie. And I remember the audience responding really well to it. I was almost surprised by that, you know. Yeah. Well, the people there at uh, Murzaki Wolf must have really loved Flo and Eddie because, I mean, not only did they use them for you know 200 motels you know and uh the dirty duck but they did a series of strawberry shortcake records and oh yeah TV specials and care bears and uh a few others that they wrote songs for and did voiceovers for and all sorts of things. Well, i mean i i mean you'd probably better off asking mark and howard about this but i'm assuming that they met while making 200 motels because flo and eddie yeah. were in the mothers at the time yeah and i, I if i'm See, I'm still working on it, but I think if memory serves, they kind of met because they were also working on The Point with Harry Nielsen. They are friends with Harry Nielsen. So, yeah. you know, it was all big L.A. connection going on in the early 70s around. Oh, there. yeah. So, so. 
you know, he's had the Hollywood vampires with Mickey Dolans and <laughs> Ringo Starr and John Lennon and all those others, Keith Moon, you know, <laughs> so, uh, anyway, um, yeah, so that was a studio I was thinking, did you ever work for, um, trying to think if there's other ones, um, so after, you know, we, we've talked about Mighty Mouse before, but, um, did that ever was that ever destined to go beyond the one or two seasons or is just kind of no um yeah i well that's when we started the second season we knew that was that was it oh okay and i thought that was an incredible blunder on cbs's part telling us that Mm -hmm. they 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 picked up some extra shows for the second season they said after this you're not getting any more and we're like well, if they're going to cancel us anyways, then we can do whatever we want. <laughs> yeah. So, did you have more censorship problems then, if that's the case, or no? Well, I mean, of all the TV shows I worked on, that had the least censorship. I know there's some stories that there was no censorship, which is not really true, but we had the least. Interesting. Censorship, okay. And that was all because of Ralph. Okay. <laughs> Ralph would actually tell him to go to hell if he thought requests <laughs> crests were too stupid. So we'd get way less notes than on some of the other shows I worked on. Way less. Hmm. I mean, I know it's notorious now for the sniffing flower sequence, which, you know, they thought was mighty That was John's <laughs> idea. I, I, some, someday in private, I'll tell you how that all happened. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, was that ever censored in by the network in advance or is it only because of that no it, it actually uh, aired like that yeah that's what i thought because i i remember it airing and then the outcry came out so but was yeah, it and, i mean there's was it the network story. coming after it at it'll, that point or? it'll take me more than an hour to tell that story okay okay <laughs> we'll go into um, that story but uh uh but short answer was it did the network care or is it all just this uh, outside thing well here's the thing it, 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 the cbs's initial response and i have xeroxes of all this stuff yeah uh cbs's initial response was we'd be happy to run the cartoon for you as you obviously haven't seen it before <laughs> hmm interesting yeah. so at first they were like you know they were kind of brushing the guy off but ultimately i think they they cut it out on some of the repeats yeah they did because i remember that because i used to watch that show voraciously no matter if it was a new one or a repeat because i thought it was a funny show and of course back in those days no home video of it you know i mean it took years for that to come out i think it was the dvd set was the first home video release yeah that was what 2004 maybe yeah which i was totally shocked that that actually would come out because i mean there's no other mighty mouse release so i thought this is kind of out of left field (laughs) yeah you want to know they did a good job on that because you know that was a, a kind of a transitional period where some studios were using computer paint which was very primitive then Mm-hmm. Uh, which would have meant that the finished films were on NTSC one-inch tape. Mm-hmm. You know, our shows were kind of a hybrid. All the animation was shot on 35-millimeter film, mm-hmm. and the preliminary editing 
you know, the, the picture track was edited on film and the basic sound mm-hmm. cut on film also. But ultimately, you know, the music was dubbed in while it was on tape. Mm. So the show was what went out of the network was a one inch tape, but there was 35 millimeter film of mm. the track. Do you think that helped it come out on home video? Because yeah, it did okay, because okay. they were able to retransfer, and they did. <laughs> they the film, they uh-huh. cut it, they cut the film. If it didn't match up with what was on the tape, they they edited it to match the picture. Mm. The picture track was a new transfer on, on that video. Interesting. Okay, because I mean, like when I talked to Jerry Beck about like a lot of the mainly Hanna Barbera series that come out on home video. Um, I said, why is this series out that nobody cares about? Say, I'll just randomly say like Roman holidays. And why isn't something else out, you know, that everybody wants like second, third season of Huckleberry Hound. Now I know it's music rights and other stuff going on, but, uh, Jerry has always said that, you know, a lot of this stuff is just sitting around and is able to be put out pretty easily without much effort, you know? And so it sounds like a similar thing with the mighty mouse thing that, you know, it was in a format that you could easily put it onto a disc and shoo, done. You know, well, they 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 no, they actually did some work. They didn't just dump. Okay. You know, the, the, you know, like they did with those with those stupid J. I was so mad at the J. Ward DVDs because they just used that syndicated package where they didn't get music clearance. Yeah. And stuff. You know, and, uh, there was a lot of tampering and wrong soundtracks on that. I'm always wondering about that and maybe you know maybe you don't but was a lot of it actually music right clearances or was it just mainly ignorance and you know just you know putting it out without checking what the correct music track was or you know this is easier let's just put this out this is is something you asked Keith Scott about but I thought it was because the first season, a lot of the stuff that was composed by Frank Comstock, which was the first Mr. Peabody theme, the Rocky show opening, the fractured fairy tale opening, mm-hmm. and you know, a lot of the incidental cues, they didn't own free and clear. Ah, okay. Later when they had, you know, I think Dennis Farnan and Fred Steiner doing, I think they own that music. Yeah, okay. So they eliminated, even if it was a few notes of the horns going da 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 da, da which they'd sometimes right. add a few notes of, they'd clip those notes out of the track. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. And people ask me all the time, like, I'm some expert, <laughs> but uh, they go, well, if they ever put this stuff out on Blu-ray, will they ever fix it? And I go, probably not. It'll probably be the same thing just on Blu-ray. Yeah. No. So, you know, if you've got any films or tapes from the Sunday show where they at least had the right soundtracks, yeah, hang on to them. Yeah. Yeah. I I have, you know, even with the total television stuff, I have, you know, my uh, nice collection of bootleg stuff because, you know, it just doesn't look the same. They never do it exactly correct. And, you know, yeah. You know, it's like, it seems like you could do it, but, you know, I, I, I get it because sometimes if it's not music rights, certain elements are missing. I mean, I don't know if you know my story about 
when I was putting together the Underdog and Tennessee Tuxedo uh, DVD sets a few years ago, uh, they actually had all the cartoons in pristine shape. This is Hallmark had them, and then it got to transfer, sent over to Classic Media, and uh, but they didn't have any of the audio tracks at all. <laughs> so all the audio you hear on the DVD are from my bootlegs. I had to send them to send it to them, and they they married them back together and synced them up so it would work, and mm. that's what you got. So. <laughs> yeah. But at least it's the original soundtrack. But you know, it's it's like generation from you know the original, of course. You know, yeah. so it's crazy because I thought, didn't you guys keep all this stuff? I mean, it aired for thirty years on TV. <laughs> you know? So I don't know. But um, let's see, what other questions can I ask? <laughs> um, so after uh, Mighty Mouse, uh, you did the first season of The Simpsons, or did you have something in between that? Or were you I, just I, working it, a lot it's of all, I was jumping around a lot. I did work on the first season of The Simpsons, which ironically was in the Clampett building. Mm -hmm. we, we were on the second floor of the Clampett building, and Kent Butterworth, Rich Moore... J.C. Wegman and myself had the office over the front door with that little balcony. Hmm. There were pigeons were congregating on <laughs> all day. But that was a space I wanted, I wanted to make Beanie in. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, uh, I guess that was a year before. Mm -hmm. I talk him into making, you know, the second floor was, had been vacated, so there's no tenant in it. I'm like, let's make Beanie up there, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's mainly what you worked on is the new episodes of Beanie and Cecil. I, I, I worked on it up to the point where they, you know, I was working on development and pitch stuff directly with Sony. And uh, when the, the, the network kept trying to steer them into a network approved studio, mm. Basically meant one of the ABC execs had uh, you know an interest in Deke mm. and uh, wanted to steer the show to Deke, and there was no way I wanted to work for Deke, make it a Deke, and be the man that ruined Beanie. <laughs> so I, I apologized. I didn't. I didn't take the producer job. I and I went back to Ralph's. Mm -hmm. And, and we did more Mighty Mice. That that was between seasons of Mighty Mouse. And during that time, Tom Minton was there. Tom was going to be the head writer mm -hmm. of the show. And he didn't like the way things were shaping up with ABC mm. either. And he went back to Ralph's first, you know. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, great. We don't have Tom now. Yeah. Um, now... I know he's a sensitive topic nowadays, but, you know, I'm going to talk about him briefly. Anyway, John Christopher Lucy, you know, it's like, did he work, you know, he worked on both of those, the Mighty Mouse thing and the Beanie and Cecil he, he, thing. He, yeah, he worked on the first season of Mighty Mouse, but not the second season. Oh, I didn't know that. I guess I the second season, he was at Deke during the Beanie show. Okay, so he did go over to Deke. I mean, it's very confusing. So how did how did that Beanie and Cecil thing work? I mean, it was originally going to be a Clampett production, like the original, and then they were moving it over to Deke? Is that what you're saying? Well, no, Deke, well, the network 
the network said you got to use a network approved studio. Ah, okay. I get it now. Okay. No, I was trying to talk everybody into producing it themselves. We'd done Mighty Mouse a year before, and I tried to describe what Ralph did to set the show up mm-hmm. and what the schedule was like and how many people were involved. And uh, no, I ended up going to Deke, and I said, well, if you go to Deke, you're going to be stuck with their writers. They're going to eat most of the budget up. <laughs> and if you want to do layouts, you're going to have to bring your own tables. Wow. <laughs> he didn't have any, they had no animation paper. They had no animation desks. Hmm. So they had to build a bunch of, you know, they bought a, they bought a bunch of these knockdown desks and built them up and bought some discs but uh, they'd never seen those things at Deke before because they never did any production work there. Wow. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, you know, and, and it, it, the funny thing as a fan, you know, it's like, I think I only saw one, maybe two of the final aired episodes. I mean, did they even, did all of them even get made or even make it to air? What, what happened to that series? I, 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 I it was behind schedule. Yeah. And there's any number of reasons, which I won't go into why that might have been, but it, it, was, it, it was not on schedule, no. Yeah. And that, that, that's a little sensitive, too. I don't want to go into too much. Right. But yeah. uh, do we know how many episodes actually were finished and how many actually made it to air? Because like I, I, said- I, I think it aired for four weeks, and I think okay. that fourth week they may have had to they may have had to run one of the old cartoons in the Phil airtime. Wow. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Sounds similar to Red and Stimpy, and I know that story later, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm wondering if it's the same reason, but anyway, we won't go into that. I agree with you. Everybody's like, please, please, please. And it's like, I want to talk about other things. My show. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, so um Let's see. Um, after Simpsons, I know that story, and you've talked about working in the first season there. I suppose you could repeat some of it if you want. But uh, my curiosity is, what did you do after that? Um, or were you just continuing to work? You no, know, I I had other interests already. I mean, I was already doing a lot of commercials, right? Commercials by then, and doing comic book work. Yeah. So. And I think I was still working for, yeah, I was still working for Rick Reinert on the side. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that was another long running studio. And Rick, just a brief word about Rick. He was one of the nicest producers in the business. He was really, they were really a nice outfit to work for. And what what did they produce? What type of things? They They did a lot of commercials, large number of public service commercials. They also did you know, a lot of after-school specials for ABC. Hmm, okay. Uh, they did some contract work for Disney, you know, like that Orange Bird film, I think, a day for Eeyore. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, Rick himself was really good at painting in watercolors, and he often painted the backgrounds in his own films. and they were you know probably the last studio that was using watercolors but they were really lovely watercolors Mm -hmm. yeah and so uh, yeah for disney they did like it seemed like they did other educational films right that had yeah i think they did yeah 
okay. Because I remember they seeing a few of those that had like the regular characters, but it's like this never aired on television or whatever. Okay, so <laughs> um, uh, so I guess I could just ask you what what are you doing currently? I mean, do you still work in the industry? What do you do now? You know, it's like I I, I don't do a lot now. Um, well, yeah, one of the last places I was working regularly for was Bongo Comics on the Simpson Comics. Oh, that's right, you were. Yeah, and then of course... yeah, I did that for fifteen years, and they. They just stopped without telling anybody. Really? Okay. <laughs> I was a little miffed that they didn't bother to tell anybody they were ceasing okay. operations. Well, it kind of seemed like the writing was on the wall when Disney bought 20th Century Fox, but I didn't know if that was the no, reason. No, yeah, that wouldn't have had anything to do with it because Matt had the right, the comic book rights. That's true. He did. Yeah. He had, he had the comic book rights. So. You know, they had to acknowledge that the characters were trademarks of Fox, which they did in the Indicia, mm -hmm. but they really didn't have any control over the comic books. Okay, so it had nothing to do with the Disney sale that he decided to pull the plug at that point then? No, it was just, you know, um, I heard this, you know, secondhand, but I, I think his attorney convinced him that they had enough inventory that they didn't need to make any more new comics. Yeah. Of course, where do they print them now? I mean, they're not even putting out trade paperbacks or anything anymore. No, they still do paperbacks, but they also have them on iTunes. Yeah. Ah, okay. So it's all digital yeah, now. They okay. have digital sales, yeah. Okay. And I'm sure you don't get any royalties from that, right? No, they, they, they never paid for reprints and they never return artwork. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> Sounds like the they old paid, days. They paid better than most companies, but they didn't give you the artwork back. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like Mad Magazine or something. You know? yeah. <laughs> that, that come, I worked for Marvel and DC and Archie, and they always sent the artwork back. Hmm. So. so at this point, would you consider new offers and everything like that i mean i'm sure you do commissions and stuff like that but i mean it's uh, like he's still in the market for <laughs> new production yeah, and new things. yes uh, <laughs> what does it say i can't hire me i can't even see it uh, i'm cheap i'm cheap <laughs> Hire me, I'm cheap. Well, I did hire this man twice. I hired him for two book covers. Um, you know, I need to write a few more books. Actually, I have a Disney book coming up that I need a cover for. Maybe I'll, I'll <laughs> consult with you again, you know, because I've used Scott Shaw twice. I've used Jim Engel twice. I uh, used John Severin twice, but that was kind of unintentional. But, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh yeah, so maybe time to uh, seek out your services, but yeah. Um, anyway, I, I don't know, you know, if I have anything else to add or ask at this point. I always like talking to you and everything like that, but I guess, uh, do you ever do any shows anymore? I know you don't like going to San Diego anymore. Well, I mean, you know, there, a lot of the shows are interrupted by by you know the virus situations I mean, of course but things are starting that time. yeah 
So, I mean, I'll probably end up going back at some point to some of the shows, but mm-hmm. yeah, but yeah, the last couple of years, no, yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, it seems like you survived, so at least that happened. <laughs> so, I'm still um, here. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm still here, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> the infamous Mike Kazala is right there. Anyway. <laughs> All right, and uh, any more epi- any more issues of Zorch? I know it took what thirty years to do two issues. <laughs> yeah, it was it was eighteen years. 18 years. That's right. It was a big long gap, and I think when I saw you, you put issue two out, and I was like shocked that you bothered with a second issue. You know, and it's like I, I'm shocked too because by that time there there was no you know it's easy it's easier than ever to print the comic book, but it's harder than ever to sell to- them. Yeah. sell them yes <laughs> isn't that the thing isn't that the you truth? know it's like um i uh, a plug for one of, one of my uh, good friends who passed on recently will ryan we did some comic books mm-hmm. uh, based on the duo that uh, he and nick santa maria were biffle and schuster oh yeah i just interviewed him recently uh nick that yeah is. <laughs> and we did six issues of a comic book which Hardly anybody saw, so uh, you know, mostly selling them where he and Nick were performing. Oh, okay. So yes. uh, then we decided to collect them in a paperback and put them in print on demand. Hmm. Okay. I think I had a- heard about that because I know they put all the shorts on a DVD. And uh, yeah, let me quick plug here. Not that I don't get anything for this, but I'm plugging it anyways. All right. Yeah. This is this is the paperback. So. <laughs> look, Nick. Look, Nick. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, I assume you're really close to Will Ryan, uh, and you know, since he passed away and everything like that. Um, did you work with him on at various studios, or are you just a personal friend of his? Well, no, he's he was a personal friend for a long time, and. There were times we worked on the same projects, but not in the same department, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> because, you know, usually on the shows, he would, if we were on the same show, he was doing voice, voices. Right. right. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I the last time I saw him, uh, and this is another podcast episode. <laughs> well, uh, I had uh, Amber Jones's. Uh, uh, movie uh, documentary about Bill Scott, which I don't know if you've had a chance to see, um, but she has. Yeah, no. it's on. It's on YouTube. I can send you a link to it. It's very well. Oh yeah, done. please. Yeah, and uh, she interviewed the family, uh, but she also interviewed like Keith Scott and did interview Will Ryan, and uh, that was the last time I saw him. She had like an online Zoom just like that. There's like thirty little boxes of everybody watching it, and I was one of them. Uh, Keith Scott was there, Tara Strong was there, uh, and Will Ryan was there, among others, you know, in the Scott family and stuff like that. So, you know, uh, it was very well done. And, you know, she's only 18 years old, and it's like she did an incredible job uh, of a documentary. So, yeah, I'll send you a link after we get off here. <laughs> so, um, you'll enjoy it because did you know Bill Scott or did you? No, I, I, okay. I knew a lot of other Ward alumni, but not. Because okay. uh, you know, you said you made it out here in '85. Maybe you saw him once before. You... Yeah, I, I did meet. 
I, I didn't know him that well, but I met Jay Ward a few times. Mm-hmm. Both times was at the Emporium that he had yeah. on Sunset. Yeah, I'll tell you my story. The, the, I, I didn't really meet him, but uh, it was at the Emporium. And uh, it was back when his wife was still running the shop. And Tiffany would sometimes be out there, too. But he never came out. But I, I knew he was there. Yeah. And I think I asked about him. I said, is Jay here? And she goes, oh, no. You know, it's like he's busy or he's not here or something like that. And then, and I was like 12 years old at the time. And it's like, then I go outside and uh, there's this guy with a big mustache in the window and he waves to me. And I said, <laughs> you know, but I was too shy, I guess, at that age to go back and say, you're there. But I waved to him. So I, I could say I waved to Jay Ward. Hey, you know, <laughs> but it's yes. like, I guess he was a very shy person from what I've been told. So, you know. Yeah, I guess it was a shy, ext- a shy extrovert. Yes. Yeah. Or perhaps or, or perhaps an exhibitionist introvert. Yeah. Although, you know, that is an appropriate way of me to see him that I'm told he's not there. And then he waves to me out the window saying, I'm still here. You know, Um, I think this is about 1981. So they were still in production then, you know, still doing Captain Crunch, you know. That was like, who's that guy with a mustache? (laughs) I know it was him. I heard him call his horse Silver. No, I knew it was him because, yeah, his mustache is very distinctive, you know, and it's like it was him, you know, I've seen photos of him, you know, so um, anyway, so that's my brush with fame, you know, I, you know, I got to wave to Jay Ward anyway, so, (laughs) but I did meet Buck Biggers in LA, I don't know, did you go to that one convention uh, that was in Mm -hmm. LA? That Buck Biggers actually came out? uh, No, I wasn't there. about underdog, Uh, geez, it was about... It's got to be about 10, 10 years ago now, you know, and uh, I said, "Ooh, if he's coming to L.A., I got to go. And so, yeah, I went down. We chatted for a bit. I got him to sign some uh, pictures of underdog and stuff and uh, comic books and stuff like that. And then I yeah, flew home. <laughs> but, yeah. Anyway, so that's my connection on total television. But anyway. All right. Um, so. We're at the end of the show. Here's your chance to like plug yourself. How can people get in contact with you? Give you work? Give well, you- I'm opening in Las Vegas at the Sands Hotel. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Take two. <laughs> yes, uh, Dean Martin will be opening for me. And, yes. <laughs> But seriously, seriously. Um, uh, so how can people get in touch with you? Is they, they like uh, uh, a commission, some artwork, or just ask you a question? What's the best way? Uh, well, I have email, but um, it's carrier pigeon, message in a bottle. And they can... <laughs> Do you mind giving your email on the show? can on the string. <laughs> Well, if I say it, it'll, you know, it's it's not a word of English, so. <laughs> well, we've already said it on the show. It's Zorge. Oh. Yeah. It's, it, it, well, it's mkazorge, yes. Yes, mkazorge at gmail.com, so. No, at, okay. no, at, at SBC oh. Global. Oh, SBC Global.net. That's right. That's right. 
because I just emailed it right before the show. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, just as a quickie, you know, it's like, uh, Zorch, you got that from transfusion by nervous nervous correct well yeah yeah okay so that's what i thought i think we mentioned we discussed that before but i was just kind of curious so if you haven't heard transfusion by nervous nervous flip on over to youtube i'm sure yeah, it was in that <laughs> ape call actually oh it was ape call yeah yeah real zorge that's that's yeah that's i don't remember because i have a dvd that has like everything he ever recorded which wasn't much and i and i think died, yeah, yeah. And and it may have been coined earlier than that. I know he used to something to work with a radio personality called Red Blanchard, but I think also used to use the word. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Very cool. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Mike Cazella, for being my special guest today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And if I get down to LA again one of these times, you know, I'll probably look you up, look up Jerry, look up something else I, don't know. <laughs> anyway, I was going to say something a little vaguely dirty but you can apply it anyway uh and <laughs> all right and i thank you again and we'll see you on another fun ideas podcast see you next okay, time okay. thank you for listening and thank you mike kazala for being my special guest remember you can always watch the video version of this episode on youtube episode number 174 will be coming soon if you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.